So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Hey friends, Elisa Childers here. On today's podcast, I'm going to take some time to respond to some criticism I received in regard to an article I wrote over at the Gospel Coalition about a month ago. The name of the article was Three Beliefs Progressive Christians and Atheists Share. And you can take a look at that on the Gospel Coalition site, and I also have a link to it on my blog. So this article was really the result of an observation I began to make as I studied progressive Christian materials. And as I read the books and listened to the lectures and the podcasts, what began to emerge was what I would describe as an ideological connection between progressive Christianity and atheism. And for anyone who knows my story, I didn't discover this in a vacuum. I actually came out of a progressive church In fact, it was within this progressive church that my historic Christian beliefs were challenged intellectually. And so as I began to search for more information regarding some of these objections and claims, I discovered apologetics because it was the apologists that were interacting with the claims and objections of atheists, which I found to be very similar to the ones that came up in this progressive church. So I found their work to be applicable to the journey I was on. The criticism I'm responding to today comes from Pete Enns, who did a podcast recently analyzing the article I wrote and giving his thoughts on his podcast called The Bible for Normal People. Pete's professor of biblical studies at Eastern University, and uh, previously he's taught at Westminster Theological Seminary. If you're not familiar with his work, he's an influential scholar in the progressive Christian world. In fact, in Rachel Held Evans's latest book, she credits him with inspiring and informing a lot of the thinking behind her book and her approach to the Bible. So a while back, he wrote a book called Inspiration and Incarnation, Evangelicals and the Problem of the Old Testament. I haven't read that book for myself, so I wouldn't be able to comment on the content, but it caused quite a stir. And from what I understand, this was the first indication that Pete was changing his mind about how Christians have typically read the Bible and more specifically the Old Testament. So this book proved to be controversial and ended up with him parting ways with Westminster Theological Seminary. I want to thank Pete for his charitable and gracious tone in interacting with my article. It's my prayer that I will be able to respond charitably as well. So I thought I'd give a quick flyover of the article before we get into some of the disagreements. So the piece starts with the story of Bart Campolo, 
who was a fairly well-known evangelical minister who began to struggle with uh, what could broadly be described as the problem of evil. He was working in the inner city and was struggling with some of the suffering and some of the evil that he witnessed there. So he began to let go of some of his essential Christian beliefs, and he described that period as a more progressive type Christianity. And then he ended up giving up on his faith altogether and describing himself as post-Christian and as a secular humanist. And I was listening to a podcast where he predicted that in 10 years, 30 to 40 percent of progressive Christians would also come to some kind of unbelief or atheism. And then I went on to identify some other people who have gone through a similar progression from a conservative faith into a more progressive faith into a type of atheism, and then sometimes back to some type of faith, but maybe not something you could call historically Christian. And so what I identified were three beliefs that these two groups hold in common. And so the first of those beliefs is that they may adopt a belief that the Bible is unreliable. And the second belief that I've observed progressive Christians and atheists have in common is that they may have an unresolved answer to the problem of evil. And then the third point is that they may affirm a culture adapting morality. And then at the end of the article, I brought it into the practical. What can we do to help prevent this from happening in our own homes and churches? And so that's just the basic gist of the article. And so early on, Pete identifies certain categories and words that he might be using throughout the podcast, but he wanted to define them to avoid misunderstanding. And so one of the words that he brought up was the word fundamentalism, which that word carries a lot of baggage. It's sort of like the word evangelicalism. That word carries a lot of baggage too. So Pete defines fundamentalism. Here's a quote from from his podcast. He says, In regards to fundamentalism, it's simply a way of talking about a certain cluster of ideas that some Christians hold as non-negotiable for Christian faith. And if I take his words at face value, with the one caveat that I don't know what he means by certain cluster of ideas, like he might have a broader definition of what that is than I might, but if he's saying that fundamentalism means that you believe that there is one or some non-negotiable beliefs in order to call yourself a Christian, then I would agree with that uh, definition. The problem, though, is that often that's not what's meant by fundamentalism. And Pete was careful to say he's not using it as a negative or pejorative term, but he's using it as a descriptive term. At the same time, though, when people hear that word, even there are certain denominations that have that word in their title, and uh, sometimes they are hyper-legalistic or almost cult-like in their control. So it can be a difficult word, but I'm going to take Pete's definition and say that, that I agree. And I would say, according to that definition, that is what Christianity is. I don't think you can have Christianity outside of the idea that there are certain foundations we're building upon, that there are certain beliefs that you must hold. You know, that's what actually sets Christianity apart from other world religions. So many other religions are a set of teachings or a set of things to do, whereas Christianity is really about putting your trust in the person of 
Jesus Christ. And so somebody who really explained this in a very insightful way, I think, is the atheist Christopher Hitchens. Now, he's dead now, but in 2009, he was interviewed by a Unitarian minister. And so here's what she asked him, and here's how he responded. The religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. And then she asks Christopher Hitchens, do you make a distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Christopher Hitchens said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah, and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. And I have to say that I agree with the atheist here, that Christianity means something. There is something that has made it unique in the world for 2,000 years. There's something that defines it. And if you, if you can't say, even at a basic level, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, He rose from the dead, that He made the sacrifice for our sins, that's not Christianity anymore. And so if that's fundamentalism, then so be it. But I think that Christopher Hitchens gets that right. So one point of agreement here, Pete says, the three points Elisa mentions are very good points, and I do think that there are resemblances between progressive Christians and atheists on these problems. So we agree about that. But then he goes on to say, what is not being addressed, however, is that though these two groups share these same observations, they still address them very differently. And this is where he's heading into where he says the discussion really needs to happen. And that's at the level of the premises that he believes are underlying the points I made. And he said, this is where the discussion needs to happen. And so that's great. Let's do that. Let's, let's talk about those premises or perceived premises. So the first one he says are underlying the post is the premise that there is a trajectory from progressive Christianity to atheism. And he said he wants to push back pretty significantly on this, that this isn't his experience. He knows progressives who have a very strong and firm faith. And though it may happen sometimes, that's not the norm. And that's fine. In the post, I'm not trying to claim that there is a trajectory. In fact, I was careful to say that I don't know if Bart's right about that. Time will tell. But I think identifying similarity in belief between progressive Christians and atheists should be a point of concern. If you're a Christian and you share the same opinion as an atheist on significant things like the Bible and the goodness of God and morality, that's something to take a look at to ask yourself, why do I share the same opinion as atheists on these very important faith questions? From here, Pete goes on to describe what he calls the fundamentalist model of faith, and he says it drives home again and again that it's their way or the highway. And if you begin having questions about that, your only other option is atheism. And aside from this being a bit of a straw man, it's actually in direct contradiction to the definition he gave for fundamentalism at the beginning of the podcast. Remember, he described fundamentalism as someone who simply believes that there are are certain non-negotiable tenets of the Christian faith. 
And now he's characterizing it as basically believe everything I believe, or you're out of here and never question it, or, you know, you're going to become an atheist. And what this reveals is an oversimplification of the views of evangelicals. I think Pete isn't acknowledging the diversity of theological views among the different streams of evangelicalism. Yes, we agree there are essentials, but it's not a my way or the highway type mentality. And to paint it as such is to build a straw man, even maybe unintentionally by reacting to abuses rather than the real thing and what the church is actually teaching. The next premise that Pete is wanting to challenge is my claim to be speaking for so-called historic Christianity. That's a phrase I use a lot. It's one I've thought a lot about. But he says this is bordering on being rather naive about the history of Christianity. He says, Christian faith is actually tremendously diverse. Not anything goes, but many things go. Now, I'm going to read that again. Christian faith is actually tremendously diverse. Not anything goes but many things go. So on one hand, he's saying there's all this diversity, but it wasn't like Christians could just believe whatever they wanted to, which implies that there were some non-negotiable beliefs Christians shared in history, which means that historic Christianity is fundamentalist in nature based on Pete's definition. That's what I'm saying. That's, that's actually the point I'm trying to make. And this is where I think Pete might be importing something into the article that the article isn't claiming for itself, that somehow when I'm using the phrase historic Christianity, I'm speaking for the very specific founding documents of the Gospel Coalition or evangelicalism at large. That's not what I mean by the phrase historic Christianity. I mean what Pete means, that Christianity is very diverse. Not everything goes. There are some fundamentals. So if we're going to try to define historic Christianity, we need to look at creeds. Creeds were statements of faith. They were the statements that Christians all agreed upon were the not anything goes part of the faith. And of course, we're all aware of the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, but I want to talk about what's possibly the earliest creed in Christian history, and that's found in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, of course, 1 Corinthians was written somewhere in the 50s, but the creed that Paul records in 1 Corinthians 15 is dated from three to seven years after Jesus's resurrection. And by the way, this is not controversial. This is something that your ultra-liberal scholars affirm, as well as your conservative scholars. N.T. Wright affirms this is an early creed, and Bart Ehrman affirms it. In fact, Bart Ehrman says that this particular creed is Christianity in a nutshell for the first century Christians. This is what they believed. So let's take a look at this, 1 Corinthians 15. Starting in verse 3, Paul says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And in the New Testament, when you hear phrases like, For what I received, I passed on to you, Bart Ehrman calls this code language that ancient Jewish teachers would use to pass their traditions and their teachings on to their students. So that's code that you're about to hear a creed. And Paul says this is of first importance. So of all the things that we debate about and we talk about, this is most important. So what is it? The creed says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. 
And Paul goes on, After that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And then, of course, Paul records his encounter with the risen Lord. He says, Last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So what are we looking at in this creed? First of all, that Christ died for our sins. There was a reason that he died. He wasn't just killed at the hand of an angry mob. He wasn't simply capitulating to humans who had a lust for blood or wanted their pound of flesh or who were copying the pagan influences of blood sacrifice around them. It says he died for our sins. And this is the beginnings of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And then it says, according to the scriptures. So it's connected with the scriptures. Next, we find out he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the scriptures, and then that he appeared to all of these eyewitnesses. So what I'm seeing here is very similar to what Christopher Hitchens said, that Christ died for our sins, that he was resurrected. And understanding these events was tied in and actually depended upon having reliable scripture. And there are other creeds tucked away all throughout our New Testament. A great book to get on this is called The Earliest Christian Confessions by Oscar Kuhlman, edited by Gary Habermas, who's also done some great work on this. So along with those early creeds, we also have something called the rule of faith. And this is something early church fathers like Hippolytus, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, all used to battle the heretical ideas that were springing up around them. Because practically from the get-go, heretical ideas were coming into the church. That's why so much of the New Testament is dedicated to what to do about these false teachings and these false gospels and these false teachers. If there was a false version, there had to be a right version. And so this rule of faith was essentially the authoritative apostolic tradition in the first century, and it came to be summarized. And Dr. Michael Kruger from RTS writes that the rule of faith was particularly effective because it was oral in a mostly illiterate world. It was relatively brief, so it was easily employed that way, and it was widespread. It was available to a broad range of churches. And you can actually read these summaries for yourself. If you don't already have the complete anti-Nicene, Nicene, and post-Nicene Church Fathers collection, it's only $3 on Kindle. It's a thousand books for, for three bucks. You can't beat that. And it's the uh, all of the writings of the Church Fathers. And so if you just, for example, take what Irenaeus wrote and what Tertullian wrote about the rule of faith, they are strikingly similar. You have statements about the nature of God being three in one. You have the virgin birth. You have the sinless life of Jesus. You have his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his bodily ascension into heaven, all recorded as the rule of faith. And this is something that historic Christians have always believed. And the earliest Christians didn't only have creeds to inform what their core essentials were long before councils were convened to settle some disputes about some books of the New Testament or to stamp out heresies long before that. Christians had the Gospels and the letters of Paul, which were not disputed. Those were functioning as a core canon from almost as soon as they were written. So if we move from here, now we're moving toward the creeds people are more aware of, the, the Nicene Creed, the Council of Nicaea. And what's emerging here is that contrary to what sometimes is 
proposed, the Council of Nicaea was not just a bunch of Christians getting together to figure out what they all think about the deity of Jesus. There was an established idea of who Jesus was. In fact, you can find that all throughout the New Testament, and there are some creeds within the New Testament that address the deity of Jesus. But what the Council of Nicaea was convened to do was to deal with a heresy that had sprung up in the church called Arianism that was challenging the historic position of the deity of Jesus. And now that the church was not under heavy persecution anymore, they could come together, they could meet, they could discuss these things. So what we see is that the Nicene Creed is really not that much different from the rule of faith that had been circulating for all those years. And so I think looking at the historical record, we can say that historic Christianity is something we can speak to. We can know what it is. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Well, I'm always excited to get to talk about a ministry that I believe in, one that I partner with called Impact 360. If you are a parent with teenagers, or maybe you're a teenager who happens to be listening to this podcast, Impact 360 facilitates summer experiences for young people. And one of those experiences is one that I'm involved with called Propel. It's a week-long camp-like environment where we bring teaching, we bring theology, apologetics, but there's also a very holistic approach with leadership training, community building. It's just an inspiring and wonderful week. I can't wait until my kids are old enough to go to Propel and experience the ministry that Impact 360 does. Right now is the early bird pricing through December 31st. So you get $100 off your tuition, but if you use my name as a promo code, that's ALISA, all caps, A-L-I-S-A, you'll get an additional $50 off. You can do all that at impact360.org slash propel. And again, that's good through December 31st. Please take advantage of that. I would love to meet your teenager this summer at Propel. There's another premise that Pete wants to challenge in my Gospel Coalition article, and I just have to say I could not disagree with him more strongly in what he's saying is the premise here. Um, But he's saying the premise that he rejects is that the evangelical faith is intellectually robust. So he's saying that the article is based on the idea that evangelical faith is intellectually robust, which Pete is saying is false. It's not. Evangelical faith is not intellectually robust. Uh, let me just, let me take a quote so you can kind of understand where he's coming from. This, this is a quote from his podcast. Pete says, of course, I'm aware that Elisa and others could appeal to scholarly champions on their side who are very educated and still hold to conservative views, which is absolutely true. But let me suggest something here. Do they hold these views because they're smart and educated, or might it be that their education allows them to find more sophisticated ways of remaining in the fold. I would be hard-pressed to find someone who, say, is an errantist because their academic training took them there. He says, don't assume that just because someone is smart that they arrive at their beliefs through the use of their intellect. So it seems like he's saying that because they come to different conclusions, their faith isn't intellectually robust, which secular scholars could bring that charge as well regarding even progressive Christian scholars, guys like Pete. I'm thinking in particular of Richard Dawkins making famous the Brights movement, the idea that all of the really, truly smart people in the world are atheists. 
And, and so this whole argument is so illogical. He's basically insulting tremendously talented, intelligent, and wise scholars because they don't agree with his conclusions. I, I think of Craig Keener as one example, one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world. I mean, this is the one of the guys N.T. Wright goes to to get book endorsements from. And Craig was an atheist before he was a scholar. He wasn't an evangelical best and brightest that got sent off to the secular institutions to fight the evangelical battle. He was an atheist prior to being a New Testament scholar. I'm thinking of William Lane Craig, who was listed in the best school's 50 most influential living philosophers, along with guys like Noam Chomsky and Daniel Dennett and Peter Singer. And uh, also on that list was Alvin Plantinga and J.P. Moreland, who's a Biola professor. So this argument is a huge non sequitur. And it may be worth pointing out as well that this really is nothing new. The book of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun, and this is nothing Christians haven't faced before. In the second century, there was a anti-Christian apologist, I guess you could call him. His name was Celsus, and he viciously attacked Christians. Some people think he might have been responding to the work of Justin Martyr. We don't know for sure, but we have his writings preserved in the writings of Origen, who wrote a fairly comprehensive refutation of Celsus's ideas. And, you know, one of his main attacks on Christians was that Christians were basically ignorant, uneducated, kind of, you know, that's what you believe if you're simple. In other words, smart people know better. This Christianity stuff is not intellectually robust. So we've been here before. So let's let's go back to the, the statement I quoted before where he says, don't assume that just because someone is smart that they arrive at their beliefs through the use of their intellect. He goes on to say, that is the modernist lie. He says, neuroscientists have been telling us now for some time that it's really our experience and our intuition that guide what we think and what we believe. The intellectual analytical side comes in after the fact as a way to buttress what we believe. Well, my response to this is that if Pete believes what he's just said is true, then why should we trust anything he says? Because this has to apply to him as well. I mean, certainly he doesn't mean to imply that that statement only applies to evangelicals. I mean, this is a very absolute statement. Don't assume that just because someone is smart, that they arrive at their beliefs through the use of their intellect. So it's logically unavoidable that this also applies to Pete and progressive Christians as well. Uh, it's just something to think about. The next thing Pete wants to challenge is my use of rhetoric. And he brought up several different things. And the one I want to talk about is my ending paragraph, because I got quite a bit of pushback on that ending paragraph. So I'm going to read it to you and then make some comments after. So the last paragraph of the article says, after all, the contemporary views that many people call progressive aren't progressive anyway. They're very old. Echoes of that primordial question, did God really say? Signs of the most wicked rebellion imaginable. And we all know where that ends up. So I want to draw attention to what this paragraph is about Notice that I say, after all, the contemporary views that many people call progressive. I, the, the paragraph is not about people, it's about ideas. And, and so one of the pushbacks that I, I think Pete is saying and what I also saw on Twitter is that I was somehow comparing progressive Christians with the serpent 
in the garden. And if you read this paragraph carefully, you will see I'm not doing that at all. First of all, I'm not comparing people to anything. I'm comparing ideas to the question the serpent asked that Eve believed. So this was saying progressives have bought the same lie. So really in this scenario, they're Eve, they're not the serpent. Uh, and in some way, we are, we are all Eve. We've all bought lies. Uh, so I'm not putting myself in any kind of a different category than I'm putting anyone else. And I think all of us need to be humble enough to say, gosh, I don't want to buy that lie. It's the oldest lie in the book, literally the oldest lie in the book. So those are the premises that he was challenging with the post. And then he moves on to push back a bit on the three points. The first having to do with the reliability of the Bible. And in that section, I list out a few quotes about the Bible from progressives. And so I just want to say, first of all, that I, I used four quotes. One of the quotes was from a website. The other three were from books. And I did not quote from a book I hadn't read myself because I wanted to be sure I wasn't taking people out of context. So it seems that the biggest problem, the biggest quote that he had a problem with was the Rob Bell quote that says, um, it's from Rob Bell's book, What is the Bible? And it's where Rob Bell says that the Bible is a profoundly human book. And Pete says, this doesn't prove anything. If it does, it actually casts some doubt on Elisa's theological orthodoxy. And so I think what he's meaning there is that if I don't think the Bible is a human book, then I'm denying that it was written by humans that were divinely inspired or something like that. I mean, just as a note, I mean, if, if you're going to talk about rhetoric, calling my theological orthodoxy into question based on one Rob Bell quote is just pretty rhetorical. So Pete goes on from there to comment about the Rob Bell quote I used. And here's what he says. He says, I suspect this quote is less about substance and more just a juicy Rob Bell quote to affirm people's fears. So I just want to draw attention to what's going on with that comment. This He's no longer interacting with my ideas, but now he's judging my motives. So he's basically saying that quote doesn't really mean anything. It's just juicy and inflammatory. And her tribe's going to rise up and be like, yeah, look, Rob Bell's a heretic. It's just going to affirm what they uh, already believe. And I just want to say, I don't think it's helpful when you stop interacting with ideas and start judging people's motives. I, of course, we all fall into that sometimes. I really try to avoid that. I don't think it's helpful. And just for clarity, I think that Rob Bell quote was perfectly appropriate because if you read my review of his book on my website, you'll see that Bell actually thinks the starting point for reading the Bible is its humanity. He even says, the Bible is a book about what it means to be human which is not what the Bible is about. The Bible is about God. Like we find ourselves in the story, but the Bible is a book about God. And, and by the way, when Rob Bell uses the term, the humanness of the Bible and everything, he means like the mistakes, the contradictions, the things that he perceives to not be accurate. You can see that and, and you can read my review for more on that. So it's a very lopsided view of inspiration. And although I don't think Bell would say it's only human, it, it lean, his book leans that way, that it's way more human than it is divine. And then Pete goes on to talk about when I quoted from his book, where he says that if you're looking for the Bible to be historically reliable, the Gospels are going to be a crippling problem for you. 
And he goes on to explain that he doesn't believe the Bible is inerrant and that it does have contradictions and other problems like that. But one assumption he makes is that when I say reliability, I mean inerrancy. That's not a claim I made in the article. Uh, I've said before that someone can be a Christian and not affirm inerrancy. In fact, the Chicago statement, the statement on inerrancy makes that distinction, that it's not an essential in the faith and that if you don't believe the Bible's inerrant, you can't be a Christian. Now, I would say that's a dangerous belief to have. And if you follow that belief out logically, it's going to lead you some places you don't want to go. But there's a difference between, you know, finding some things in the Bible you're scratching your head about, you're trying to work through, that's fine. But if you're claiming that large portions of biblical history didn't happen or that the Bible got significant things wrong, then I guess I don't understand how you could call it reliable. If you are left to figure out what's true and what's not true in the book, then how is it reliable? And so, you know, he says at one point, The Gospels do differ rather remarkably in historical details uh, that can't be harmonized or ignored. Is Elisa just not aware of this? Yeah, I'm aware of that position. I just think they can be harmonized. And it's actually those differences that help authenticate the Gospels as eyewitness testimony. You can ask detectives this. If a detective has four witnesses to the same crime and those witnesses have a chance to sit in a room together, they're probably going to smooth their stories out. They're going to get their stories straight, get rid of the discrepancies. And then when they come out and they all tell the same story verbatim, it lessens their credibility because authentic eyewitness testimony is going to come from various perspectives and different emphases. So when you take the pieces of that puzzle and you put it all together, you get a much broader picture of what's actually going on in the narrative. And this is something that Jay Werner Wallace wrote about in his book, Cold Case Christianity. He was a an atheist and he was a cold case homicide detective in LA, a very successful one. And so he talks a lot about eyewitness testimony and how that relates with the gospels in that book. Okay, the third point in the article is that both progressive Christians and atheists might have an unresolved answer to the problem of evil. And just a clarification here, I'm not implying that every Christian has to have a lockdown pat answer to the problem of evil. Uh, Of course not. We all struggle with that probably on a daily basis. But I think the difference that leads people into atheism and even into a progressive Christianity is to say, I'm struggling with this. And then that starts to implicate God's character in their mind, or if they follow a doubt that would lead them away from the goodness of God or from um, trusting that God is good, even though there's these things we don't understand that we're trying to figure out. And we see the problem of evil and doubt played out all throughout the scriptures. We see it in the Psalms. I love what Bobby Conway says in his book, Doubting Toward Faith. He writes that doubt is directional, so we can doubt toward God or we can doubt away from God. And I think a great example of this in scripture is Habakkuk. So Habakkuk was living in a time when the evil of his fellow people, the Israelites, was at an all-time high. And he was crying out to God, and he was so honest about what he was feeling. In fact, it almost comes off like he's being a bit accusatory toward God. He says, God, I'm crying out, and you don't answer. I cry out violence, and you don't save Well, then God does answer him, and he says, I am going to take care of the problem of evil among your fellow Israelites by raising up the Babylonians 
to bring them into captivity. Well, you can imagine the even more deeply layered and complicated round of doubts and questions this sort of stirred up in Habakkuk. But ultimately, at the end of the book, we have one of the most beautiful statements of faith ever recorded, where Habakkuk says, the Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. And I I think Habakkuk is a great example of someone who wrestled with the problem of evil well, who doubted well, who doubted toward God. And the third point is that progressive Christians and atheists tend to have their morality informed by the changing culture around them. And this was framed around the LGBTQ issue. And again, I don't think he's denying that there's some truth to this, but he says, look, even the biblical writers had their morality influenced by the cultures around them. He says the culture of the time affected how the biblical writers wrote. They do not have the same opinion on the Assyrians. And he's comparing Nahum and Jonah, who were both prophets to the same place and their various interactions with Assyria and their attitudes toward them. But This is something to pay attention to. The culture of the time affected how the biblical writers wrote. At face value, I would agree with that to a certain extent. The doctrine of biblical inspiration teaches that human beings wrote the Bible, superintended by the Holy Spirit, working within their personalities and their talents. They weren't human typewriters, but what they wrote was breathed out by God. What they wrote was the actual words of God. But to say the culture of the time affected how the biblical writers wrote within the context of culture adapting morality is to imply that they were influenced morally by the culture around them so that what was actually written down in scripture was influenced and informed by culture, which again, casts doubt on the reliability of what's recorded in the Bible. And we have to bear in mind too, that Jonah and Nahum were both prophets They were both speaking for God. And so when Nahum was prophesying, he was prophesying the destruction of the Assyrians because that was the judgment of God upon their sin. So it had nothing to do with their ethnicity, but it had to do with their sin. And then over a hundred years later, when Jonah is prophesying, God decides to have mercy. And, you know, Jonah wrestles with that, but ultimately he obeys God and brings the word of God to Nineveh. And something to consider here also is that people in the Bible often did affirm a culture-adapting morality. All throughout the Old Testament, you have Israel time and time again imitating the cultures around them, adopting their morality, and every time they are under God's judgment for doing so. So when you see God's people doing that, it's seen in a negative light. It's condemned. And then regarding the LGBTQ issue, Pete says... It's the last gasp, in my opinion, of seeing the Bible as a rule book that simply gives you moral answers. Just find the verse and do what it says. And this is a profoundly oversimplified way of describing how the Bible is read by many Christians, as if we just go to the back of the concordance and find the verse that fits whatever life situation we're in and presto, that's it, magic Bible verse. That is a straw man that he also builds in his book, The Bible Tells Me So. He talks about evangelicals 
having what he calls Bible-induced stress, as if evangelicals are just walking around, wringing their hands, trying to make the Bible behave, trying to shove it into a mold it wasn't meant to fit in, just to make it say what they want it to say. This is a straw man. This is a mischaracterization of how certain Christians read the Bible. It's exaggerated. It's distorted. I mean, that's not how I read the Bible. The seminary classes I've taken at evangelical institutions didn't teach me to read the Bible that way. In fact, what struck me about some of the classes I've taken is how much the professors loved the Bible, the joy they found in diving into the text and dissecting and discussing and wrestling with the passages. So to imply that the evangelical approach to the Bible is that it's a rule book is oversimplified. It's a straw man, and it's just false. So I just want to take a moment and address what I think is Pete's biggest problem with my article. This is what I got from his podcast. He agrees on the points. Yes, there's similarities there. But he's saying there's not a trajectory from progressive Christianity to atheism. It's just that atheists and progressive Christians are both reacting against fundamentalism. And I think there's some truth to that. I've actually written about this and talked about it before, Mm -hmm. that some of the friends that I've had that have moved more into that progressive world have either been victims of spiritual abuse, which is very real, or they were raised in a hyper-legalistic or hyper-fundamentalist environment where you weren't allowed to question anything. You weren't allowed to, to express any kind of doubt over what was being taught by that particular sect. Or they struggle with what the Bible teaches about sexuality and morality. And so in an effort to retain some semblance of their Christianity, they've had to look at the Bible in a different way to make it line up more with what feels like what is right to them. So yes, there are definitely people who look at Christianity and they don't like it or they don't believe it. But I think what is more often the case is that people are reacting against a false version of Christianity or an abusive version or a caricature of Christianity. And I do think this is a commonality between progressives and atheists. Toward the end of the podcast, Pete is summing up his thoughts and he makes this statement. He says, I'm not surprised, but what strikes me is the utter failure of any sense of curiosity and self-criticism. This gets back to one of the premises. If you hold the truth, there is no need to be curious about how God is moving in the world. We know it. We know it biblically. Therefore, self-criticism is off the table. We are right, and we are here to correct you. There is an arrogance to that. And again, I would just say that when you go to someone's motives, you are no longer interacting with their ideas, and it's a diversion. Because this entire podcast was Pete saying what he thinks is the truth. For someone who is condemning the lack of curiosity on the other side, the entire podcast was Pete making absolute statements about what he believes is true. The entire podcast was Pete saying, I'm right and I'm here to correct you. Knowing the truth and telling the truth isn't what makes someone arrogant. The motives of someone's heart is what makes them arrogant. If I, as a parent, tell my daughter, don't run out into the middle of the street, you could get hit by a car. If my motive in telling her that is to protect her and to help her, it's not arrogance, it's love. As I wrap up here, I want to make an observation. In arguing against my post, 
Pete has actually proven my point. I made a connection between progressive Christians and atheists and the beliefs that they have in common. And Pete agreed that those commonalities exist, but he said that progressive Christians and atheists approach these questions in very different ways. And yet, as he goes throughout his podcast, he addresses these questions exactly like atheists do. Pete described evangelical scholars as being less intellectual. That's exactly what atheists do in regard to Christian scholars. When talking about the reliability of the Bible, he casts doubt upon the reliability of the Bible. That's what atheists do. When discussing the problem of evil, rather than even mentioning the goodness of God, he brought up the Holocaust and the countless deaths people die in great suffering through natural disasters and at the hands of other humans. That's what atheists do. When he talked about morality, he almost instantly brought up the Canaanite conquest from the Old Testament and problematic verses having to do with women. That's exactly my experience with atheists when you bring up morality. Should Christians wrestle with those doubts and questions as they arise, as we read some of the more difficult passages in the Old Testament or as we observe the evil and suffering in the world around us? Absolutely. Quite a bit of time is spent in my world doing just that. But a truly safe place to process those doubts and questions will be within a body of believers who will be patient, who will listen, but ultimately who will gently nudge you back toward the reliability of the Bible, who will gently nudge you back toward the goodness of God as revealed in His Word. The progressive Christian answers and the atheist answers to these questions don't do that. They don't lead you back to trusting God's word and how God is revealed in his word. They lead you to trust yourself, but the Bible says our hearts are deceitful and wicked. So ultimately their answers give no hope. So I want to end with a quote from the end of his podcast. He says, the freedom of the spirit is a proper context for theological discussion and even debate. Let's not assume that God is bound to Bible verses and certainly not to our interpretation of these verses, but by definition has to be above and beyond all of that. And to that, I would just say, well, if God is not bound to Bible verses, then the Christian faith is worthless. And I'm not saying he's only contained within the Bible, but if he's not at least bound to what his word says, then at that point, we're just making things up. And I think this is the fundamental disagreement between historic Christians and progressive Christians is it just really does come down to how we view the Bible. So here's Pete's conclusion. He says, my last point in how I would approach all of this is to think of faith as evolving. As I've been saying, true faith never really stands still. That is not remotely a biblical idea, but is contradicted again and again on its pages. Is God's purpose for us to remain as we are with no sign of movement, of growth? Are we not human? Are we not always experiencing life, the world in which we live? Who of us here listening has not had a shift in faith on the basis of their experience? That's just the way it happens. And so I wanted to end with that because I would just, I would say amen to that. And and that's called sanctification. Growing and moving in our faith is necessary and it's beautiful. But I think the difference between, again, the the historic and the progressive view of Christianity is that I, as a self-identified historic Christian, would say, yes, growing and moving, evolving in our faith is so necessary and beautiful. But the truth of who God is 
doesn't evolve in change. And that's what gives us stability as Christians. That's what gives us a strong foundation to stand upon as we grow and as we progress in our understanding of those truths, our application of those truths, and in our process of being daily transformed by the renewing of our mind. Well, I pray my thoughts have been helpful here. I know it's not an extensive answer, but maybe it's a start. It's my prayer that the Holy Spirit will lead us all to truth and that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can sign up to receive my posts by email by going to alisachilders.com and clicking the subscribe button or simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes. So I I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me, because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7.